Welcome back to our fifth episode of OMG Omics. I'm starting to notice a trend here, and that's that some of the successful people we've been talking with are all collaborative, inquisitive, and trying to do science that works for them. Hi there, Balin. I'm so excited that you've agreed to be our fifth podcast guest on the OMG Omics series, and I'm excited for you to share your story with our audience. So maybe you can start by telling us a little bit about you and how you got to your position and why we're here today. Sure. So I um, started my scientific journey as an undergraduate researcher in an organic chemistry lab. Um, And and during this time, um, I was really actually passionate about like engineering and chemical engineering. And I wanted to work on this like particular methanol fuel cell project that was, that was running through this lab. Um, and so when the uh, faculty member approached me about signing up for a PhD in chemistry, um, it really, I didn't really think too much about it because I was thinking more about working on this fuel cell project. Um, and it seemed like a pretty awesome deal to be able to like get a PhD in science at the same time I was working on this like research project that I was super excited about. Um, and so I signed into, signed up to, to be a PhD student and basically joined during the uh, financial crisis of the of like 2008, 2009. Um, and, and promptly the project, the funding for the project was cut. Uh, so I found myself in a PhD program in chemistry um, with this intention of working on like fuel cells. Um, and that uh, really prompted me to start thinking about what I would do next as I was amidst a financial crisis and now not knowing um, what was around, I decided to give myself a year to, to figure that out. Um, and I ended up connecting with a brand new assistant professor um, who was starting their lab, who's a chemical biologist. And I thought it was pretty cool to be able to make molecules that then could ask biology questions. Um, and so I ended up starting in in, in his lab and, and um, getting super excited about kind of chemical biology. And we started making chemical tools and wanting to do mass spec with them. Um, and that was really awesome, but I was always sending samples out and so when I was a postdoc, I decided I wanted to go to a lab that would allow me to, to understand what happened to my samples after I sent them away. Um, and that's when I went to a, a chemical proteomics lab um, and worked there for a few years, but also wanted to gain additional kind of research experience in a specific field of biology that I felt was understudied using the tools that I was super familiar with. Um, so I moved to do a second postdoc um, at Stanford. Um, and I was there for two years uh, when, it, or I guess I was there for a little over a year, actually, when a, a school reached out to me and asked me to apply for their faculty search. Um, and at first I thought, oh, no, I'm not ready. Um, but my PhD advisor reached out to me and said, when a school does that, like, you apply. Um, and UCSF was the only other uh, school that still had a job opening because it was so late in the cycle. And so I applied to both schools, wrote my job application in one week, which is like not what anyone would tell you to do. Um, And I ended up um, having the privilege of being able to to come here to UCSF um, and start my lab where we're really merging chemical biology and mass spec uh, to answer questions uh, in the field of innate immunity. 
So it sounds like with so many scientists, you fell into a number of different things that helped you to figure out your path and, and to move along that path to get where you are now. Who are some of the people that have been influential to you and who've helped you along this journey so far? Sure. Um, so my, I think probably the most influential person has been my PhD advisor, um, who's a his name is Matt Pratt. He's a professor at University of Southern California. He really kind of like took a huge risk in taking someone who only had organic chemistry experience and um, really set me on this path of wanting to answer important questions in biology using chemical tools. And I think that I kind of entered everything with the idea that I had nothing to lose and I would just say yes to things that I was curious about and that interested me um, and to not think too much about it, um, but just to say yes to all of the opportunities that seemed worth exploring. That's great. And I think without good mentors, it's hard for any of us to progress. And And to see you now as a professor passing that along is is critical and important for our educational system. How do you feel about being in the San Francisco area where you have so many opportunities, you're in this hub? How does that influence your ability to be a good mentor and to be a good scientist? I love working in the Bay Area. Um, I was really, that was one of the reasons that I wanted to, to, to come to UCSF because I feel like when I got to Stanford, um, there's just this energy about the Bay Area where it really feels like anything is possible. You know, like the person in front of you at a coffee shop might be the founder of like, the next big tech company or an amazing biotech that has some new revolutionary treatment for people or diagnostic. And I think that it's a it's an awesome place to learn to be a scientist as well for trainees because, you know, there's such an ecosystem here and such a, a strong relationship between industry and academia and, and venture capital um, that really what no matter what you want to do next, um, there's kind of an opportunity here. And I think that that kind of healthy energy of being able to not feel stuck in one place or to feel like you're in like a, a college town or in a place um, that has an identity other than like exactly what you're doing in that moment is like a pretty awesome place to be. You're making me super excited. I feel like I need to come visit now and see <laughs> everything that's happening and who might be in an, a given coffee shop at any moment. <laughs> it's also a really beautiful place. Like, you know, the Sometimes I just like drive up a giant hill in San Francisco and you can see like the Bay Bridge and the Golden Gate Bridge. And it's just like unbelievable that there's this major city on top of a million hills, like with water all around. So it's definitely a really beautiful place to work. Too. So you seem to draw some inspiration from your physical surroundings. So what about if we take another step back into your training? What was one of your OMG moments for mass spectrometry? You said that you wanted to go to that type of group to see how all this was done. When did you feel like something was changing and turning in your mind? Sure. So um, I think that my OMG moment was probably um, when I made my first chemical probe and we treated cells with it. And then we looked to see what proteins were modified um, on a, on a fluorescence gel. Um, and that was really amazing to see something that I had physically made, like incorporated into cells and be able to give us some sort of information. But the information was like very qualitative of like, 
there's this much more signal over background, or maybe there's this much more of a change in signal over what, you know, a healthy cell looks like versus a diseased cell looks like, for example. Um, and so when I realized that we could actually prepare these samples in a way that would tell us the identity of who they were and how things were changing, that was super exciting. Um, so being able to like send my samples out to a mass spec facility and get back this like slew of information of like what proteins we were actually modifying was, was super exciting. So I think, again, you bring a different perspective than some of our former guests. And, and you're a chemical biologist by training. You know, you look at things a little bit differently than a traditional chemist or mass spectrometrist. So can you comment maybe on how biologists have found interest in utility in mass spectrometry and how this tool is still so important to be spread broadly? I think for so long, um, this is probably like a hot take for, for mass spectrometry, but I think for so long, it was such a feat to be able to identify proteins um, or, or modifications or what have you in, in, your, in your mass spec sample um, that it there felt, it felt like there was this disconnect between the technologists who were developing these instruments um, and the biologists who maybe would at some point want to use them. I feel like as the technology has has improved, um, the biologists have have still been fearful, right? Where they have this idea that they need, you know, 50 million cells and they need to have all of these very, very specific tools to be able to ask questions. Um that they're interested in answering. I think that we're now at this point where the technology um, is at such a place that that biologists don't need to be worried um, and that they really can leverage this technology to ask important questions. Um, and so my lab is really interested um, in kind of helping to bridge that gap to sort of say like, we are bona fide biologists who have a very specific question we're asking um, and we wanna develop technologies that other people who aren't mass spec experts can use um, so that they can leverage us as well. So what else has been really important in that journey, in that process? Um, you know, you say the mass spectrometer itself is easy to overcome, learn and do what you need to do. So where is the challenge lie for you and what tools have you used to overcome those? Sure. So I think there's been two major challenges. Um, one is with kind of the software and data processing and analytics. Um, and the other has been with sample prep. And I think with software, you know, we used to inject, you have used to have to inject so much sample and then you would get these ratios of like what percentage of, of things that you inject on the instrument can actually be attributed to a, to a protein or peptide. Um, and those, that ratio used to be very low, right? And not like a long time ago, like 10 years ago, 15 years ago. Um, and so I think there was also this idea that we were losing so much information. Um, and I think the instrumentation has improved in terms of efficiencies and in, in detecting things and being able to, to run MS1s and MS2s and sometimes MS3s. Um, but then the software leaves a lot to be desired sometimes. Um, and the software really has improved recently. So now we're getting percentages like between 30 and 50% of what the mass spec is detecting can be attributed to a, to a protein. Um, and so I think that's like really exciting. And there's obviously um, more that can be done to, to, to get even higher. But I think that those are massive strides to have made it in a relatively short amount of time. Um, and then in terms of sample prep, you know, we, there are these like very beautiful 
technologies that have been developed, but they're pretty inaccessible. Um, and so I think that companies that are making kits to be able to essentially um, process small amounts of sample um, have really sort of paved the way for this to become a more accessible um, technology for, for everyone to use. So I th- I'm pretty sure that you use um, PEPSAP and that you use Preomics for some of your sample prep. What do you hope to see from those in the next 10 to 15 years to make your job even easier for doing, you know, the front end work and then letting the mass spectrometer do its thing? So um, with Preomics, um, so Preomics kits are amazing. They essentially let you mini prep mass spec samples. So if you can mini prep DNA, um, you, you can prep a mass spec sample and have like a very high quality clean sample. Um, and, and they've done a really great job of, of sort of creating a accessible technique. I would love to see them go lower so that maybe everything to miniaturize their sample prep so that we can we can prep even less. You know, right now we can inject like 150 nanograms of a complex proteome and get back five to six thousand protein IDs. Um, but we have to prep about one microgram of protein in order to, to get to, to recover enough protein to, to do a few um, replicates. And I, so I would love to see things go even lower. I think it would probably just take like miniaturizing some of the cartridges that they use. Passive columns have been a huge game changer for us on the kind of the chromatography side of things. Um, I think because they are a little bit wider, we run them at lower pressure, but the separation is phenomenal. They're reasonably priced and they last a long time. So we find ourselves replacing a lot more of the kind of fluidics connectors and tubing um, and the emitters much more often than, than we actually do our columns. Um, and so I think that also has been a big game changer for us because when we have really precious samples, like when, when, when you throw a clog in the, in these kind of like low, these smaller, higher pressure columns, um, it's kind of game over. And the quality and reproducibility of the of the column is is also great. So before when we were using other columns, we would have to try like five or six of them to get one that just had really beautiful chromatography. And when it worked out great, that was awesome. Um, but then you throw a clog and it's you have to start all over again. And so the PEPSEV columns are just real workhorses. Um, yeah, I just, they've really, I think we've gone through three in a year and a half, which seems totally reasonable. We're running like a few thousand samples a year. So what about the learning curve there? Has it been easy for you to onboard these? Have you needed a lot of support from technicians, from application scientists, or have you just been like off and running? We were able to get uh, methods from um, application specialists um, through Bruker. Um, and we really haven't really haven't changed much beyond that. So it has really been a plug and play set up for us for the most part. Okay. So why don't we kind of go back to some of your science and some of your experiences that you've had. So as a chemical biologist, um, you know, you're clearly interested in proteins and proteomics, but what is the, the critical information that you're getting for your innate immunity research? Sure. So we are really interested in kind of two main questions, which is 
what makes macrophages, which are the kind of central Anita mean cell in our body, decide to eat another cell or not eat. Um, and so that is really a question that we are getting at. We are trying to develop small molecule modulators of these processes. We're trying to understand how these processes are altered in different disease states um, and different individuals. You know, I think when we think when we we think about it from a therapeutic perspective um, in, in trying to develop new therapeutics in this space, but also um, trying to understand why only a subset of individuals respond to um, therapeutically targeting this, this process right now. So what do you think that the, the big um, necessary outcomes in the field of innate immunity research are in the next decade or so? What, what else do you need in that regard to be able to make advances and make an impact on your research? For us, I think, we, I think there's a few things um, the innate immunologists may, may disagree with me, but I think that this space is just broadly understudied. Um, it wasn't until a few years ago that the NIH required that people use equal numbers of male and female mice in experiments, for example. Um, and oftentimes, and we, we know that there are big different, that are, there are sex-based differences in the innate immune system. And this, this has been widely reported, but it hasn't necessarily been exhaustively characterized. Um, and I think that, you know, people, there's been these massive efforts for like, RNA sequencing to look at different cell types and, and their signatures. Um, but we also, but we still don't have a really good understanding of the proteins that are expressed by all of these cell types. And so I think as things, as technologies like mass spectrometry become more widely adopted and, and we, you know, we've really hit this point now where I think we can get so much information out of, out of, out of the, the experiments that we, that we do that, um, we'll have a better understanding of, of what these cells are actually capable of doing and, and then hopefully move to also studying how post-translational modifications, for example, also regulate them. But I think there's, there's a wealth of space for like a ton more science to be done. I think like I had a student who I, who I met with uh, last week and they were saying, I'm just unclear where I should, what direction I should take my research in. Um, and, and the reason for that was not because they were stuck at a, at a spot that was, you know, overstudied and they didn't know how to differentiate themselves. The, the problem was really like, there are so many directions to take. There's so much that's understudied. Um, so how do I choose? That's an exciting problem to have. That's much better than the alternative, I think. <laughs> oh, totally. <laughs> yeah. I was like, this is a great space to be in. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> But, you know, but think about experiments that'll help, like you get to, you get the, you have the privilege of, of being able to really, you get to pick what are you driven by. And I think that that, to be able to be in a space in science where you're not confined to what is already known and how do I create an, a niche for myself um, is, is pretty awesome. It's a huge luxury. Yeah. Like you said, it's a huge privilege. So. So let's go back to numbers for a minute, because when we chatted previously, you were just kind of blowing my mind with, um, you know, how many cells are in various systems. So I took a couple notes and, and I wanted you to remind me and see, you know, if we can just throw out some fun facts here. So when you have a really small and precious sample, what exactly are we talking about here? Um, so you have a microgram of cells, but depending on cell type, that's going to vary the number you have, right? Yes, absolutely. So if we think about like 
uh, hematopoietic stem cell, which is a blood forming stem cell. These are super tiny cells. They don't have a ton of protein because they don't want to commit to a specific fate. Um, and you need about 35,000 of these cells to get one microgram of protein. If you think about a terminally differentiated cell, um, like an immune effector cell, like a macrophage, macrophages are super protein rich and, and we only need about 3,000 cells to get a microgram of protein. So again, in your method development and your experimental planning, you've got to really think more about the biology here to be successful and not just your prep and everything else. Yes, absolutely. And especially, you know, when, when you think about purifying cells and you have 3,000, for example, your sample has to be so super, super pure because having, you know, 80% purity um, wouldn't be enough in this case, right? So let's maybe tie this back to where you had some of the most fun in your experimental planning and your actual experimental endeavors. So you've done a lot of collaborations, you've done a lot of one-off studies to help people because you've really become this queen of sample prep that can do what's needed. So what are some of the more fun experiments or samples that you've worked with that you could share with us? A pretty fun project that we recently completed um, and was just accepted at Nature um, is that we have a neighbor on our floor um, at, at UCSF who studies calcium channels. Um, and he came to, to us and said, we have this protein complex or protein degradation. We don't really understand what's happening here, but we are interested. We're, we're doing a bunch of, of cryo-EM. Um, and what we've noticed on our grids is that we have the structure of the channel, but we also have this like mystery density and we don't know what it is. Um, and he said, you know, it could be another protein. We're not really sure. Um, and he showed me a gel of, of what it looked like. And it looked like there were all of these bands and the protein's quite large. So I thought, oh, maybe this is like degradation. I don't know. But then he told me that this protein had gone through two orthogonal purifications. And so I thought, whatever this is, is like pretty tightly bound to one another. Um, and so we decided to do mass spec and he just gave us the sample we processed it. Um, and my, my student Jose searched the data and we looked at it and we were like, huh, this looks like, this is definitely like without a doubt, um, the EMC, which is this complex that has been like the holy grail and like membrane protein biogenesis. Um, and the structure of the, of the MC had been solved before, but they, but not with a client bound. And so what we ended up identifying is that this lab, or Dan Miner's lab here, um, had solved the structure of the EMC bound to a client, um, which gave us a ton of information about how these channels are formed and how they, they move to the membrane. Um, but we also had all this beautiful quantitative mass spec data to, to show how different parts of the, of the um, channel are sort of assembled together um, and what, what the critical interfaces are. And as we lose members of the EMC or different parts of the, of the channel, um, how that interaction alters. And so we could really quantify the interaction um, really rigorously using mass spec and cryo-EM together, which was like super fun. 
to be able to like bring these technologies that have been changing, you know, biology, um, but really bringing them together and like leveraging state of the art techniques in both spaces. So that was super, super fun. That sounds really fun. Um, and I can see, you know, you're asking really interesting questions. You're in this wide open space and you're going about things so cleverly. And, and I can see that in your accolades. Um, you recently won the Beckman Young Investigator Award. Can you maybe tell us um, and maybe give some inspiration to some of the trainees out there on how to stick to this and how to make this work and build yourself a, a career that you're enjoying and proud of? Sure. I <laughs> I don't really see myself as a, uh, as like someone to look up to, but uh, I think I have always, you know, being able to do science is a huge privilege. Um, we get to study things that, that no one understands or, or knows about, but hopefully you feel like is an important question that, that can, you know, improve people's lives. Um, and I have just always I mean, the same way that I like I stayed in grad school to see if there was something that interests me. Like I've always just kept going until I'm not having fun anymore. Um, and so I think science should be fun. It should be exciting. Um, and I just like I, I'll stop being a scientist when I'm not having fun anymore. Um, and I think that's like what keeps me going. Um, it's amazing to be part of such an awesome community of people here. I, you know, I feel like coming to UCSF, one of the reasons I wanted to come here was because I felt like my, it would elevate my research program, but also that I had something to, to bring to the community. Um, and so being able to have collaborations like with Dan here has been, has been awesome. He is also a former Beckman Young investigator. So <laughs> that is pretty fun to be able to, to have this like um, very fancy and, and uh, you know, um, humbling ward um, and to be able to share this with someone that now we're, we're collaborating with is, is pretty cool. Um, yeah. Own I just, it, Alan. You're doing fantastic. Own it. <laughs> so I just, I like, I collaborate with people that I have fun talking to who, who are working on a problem I think is interesting and a problem I think that we can be helpful and, and solving. We have our own research direction and our own research identity, the questions we're asking, but I also um, don't, I'm not, I don't want to be so pigeonholed by like our research identity that I turn down opportunities to like expand what that, what that definition is. It's fantastic. So is there anything else that you'd like to, to leave as a closing message? Um, if there's anything you'd like to leave as a closing message, this would be your opportunity. Sure. I mean, I guess the one thing I would say is that there's been a lot of negativity surrounding like career academics. Um, and I really have to say, like, to me, I feel like I have the best job in the world. Like, I get to work on things that I think are super interesting. I get to bring people into my lab who share common interests and maybe bring different perspectives to, to the questions that we're interested in answering. And I get to work with, like, other like-minded people. I feel like I work hard, but I also don't feel like I've my life has had to suffer because I've committed my entire being to, to being a professor. Um, and I think that that's the narrative that people see is like, in order to have this job, you have to sacrifice everything. Um, I think you know, there's a tremendous amount of kind of flexibility in your schedule. And, and you know, I've had a child since I've been here. And I, um, I just think 
it is a much better job than say Twitter has made it out to be. Um, <laughs> and, and so I, for what I would say to, to, to trainees is like, you shouldn't be afraid of this job and it shouldn't be something that you think um, is inaccessible to you unless you like want it bad enough to, to lose everything else. So at the risk of perhaps tanking our own um, viewership here, don't believe everything you read on the internet, but maybe yeah. if there's an expert talking, we can we can tune in and be okay with that. <laughs> or just like do whatever you want and stop yeah. listening to reading to people's tweets. <laughs> like used car thing, right? If you have like a bad experience buying a used car, you'll tell more people than if you had a good one. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I think that that is kind of, the fate that academia has suffered, but yeah, let's apply some psychology to our internet usage. (laughs) (laughs) I hope you enjoyed our episode today with Balan. I've really started to notice with proteomics that this is such a broad and huge field that needs researchers doing many different aspects. And today's episode brought in the importance of sample preparation to be successful. I hope you enjoyed and I'll see you next time.